Broadcasting from high above the reserve, this is Radio Harambe. And thank you, as always, for tuning in to Radio Harambe. I am Dave McBride, broadcasting from the Radio Harambe studios. And not in studio, but I don't think on the road. No, I'm not. Yeah, it's Safari Mike. Mike, you're, you're just calling from vacation again, aren't you? I am, yeah. This is what you like to do. <laughs> <laughs> we have a really special show plan for you guys today. Um, we're actually going to present to you an interview that we just completed just moments ago with um, Dr. Ann Savage. She is the executive director at the Cottontop Tamarind Conservation um, Organization called Proyecto Titi, and she's also the conservation director at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Um, she's going to talk about basically you know, the conservation of the, the cotton top tamarind as well as all sorts of other things involved with conservation at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Um, we weren't going to present much news today, but we felt with one little bit of news coming up um, that if you were able to, if, if you're a, a, a fan of the show and you're able to get down to Disney's Animal Kingdom for Earth Day, now we all know that Earth Day is going to be a big day at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Uh, well, it just got a little bit bigger uh, because we, what we've announced is that not only will we be opening up all these new things, but the man himself will be on hand to uh, probably see all this firsthand. I'm sure you'll see him walking around. Uh, Joe Rohde is going to actually be at the park on that day to do a signing. Mm-hmm. He's going to be signing a beautiful piece of artwork, which he he created um which actually is of cotton top tamarins <laughs> see how this all kind of got together for us and a new book that we just just heard about right mike i mean this was yep. sort of the announcement of this book correct yeah that was the first i heard of that book absolutely it is called the disney conservation fund carrying forward a conservation legacy um it is a coffee table book i don't know if it's available to the public yet do we know that not yet. I looked. Um, I, I looked everywhere to see if I could like pre-order a copy of it, and right. I could not find one. So yeah, uh, not yet. So we're still we're still waiting on information for that. But apparently, there will be some on hand on Earth Day, and you're gonna you're gonna be able to uh, have Mr. Rody himself sign that copy. And Mike, mm-hmm. um, before we went on air, Doctor Savage told us there's gonna be this is gonna be a worthwhile book. So, uh, yes, yeah, I'll, I'll, I can't wait to get my hands on a copy. I mean, obviously, I'll be buying it as soon as I can. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what uh, what the delay is here. Maybe we'll find out in the, no, in the and, coming and weeks. Maybe by the time even this this podcast releases, there'll be uh, more information about it. I mean, who knows? And Mike, we're going to get through the rest of sort of the Animal Kingdom news in another episode. Maybe not the next but, one, but perhaps the one after that. But you wanted to make sure that we got in the information of what is taking place here. Uh, right. April 22nd, um, 
Joe's only going to appear for one hour. Yeah, that's not enough time. That's not enough time. <laughs> um, and it looks like there's going to be a distribution of wristbands. Um, I'm trying to find the uh, separate admission is required. Yeah. Um, appearances are subject to time. Obviously, restrictions apply. Um, have you heard anything about how this wristband thing is happening? Not yet. Keep your eyes out for that, though, for more information about that. Okay. Wristbands will be distributed to guests at store opening on the day of the signing. Just found it. So okay, um, good. he's going to be at the Discovery Trading Company. Mm-hmm. So they'll be distributed to guests at store opening on the day of the signing with each purchase of the Disney Conservation Fund book or piece of art to be signed by Joe Rody. So you actually have to get your wristband and purchase something, of course. Uh, a wristband from the appearance location is required to meet Joe Rody and allows the guests to get two items signed. A limited number of wristbands will be available on the day of signing. Uh, once the wristbands have been distributed, the line to meet Mr. Rody will be closed. So he's going to meet at 1 o'clock, but you're going to need to get your wristbands right. at Rope Drop. It's going to be interesting to see a bunch of people at Rope Drop clamoring their way to the store. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be interesting. And that would be considering the crowd that's going to be there that day. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's Yeah, because that's also Rivers of Light and, and likely Tiffins is opening that day too. And also, I don't know about Tiffins, that's saying summer. Staying still saying summer, but isn't the yes, uh, I've it, heard some rumors that it might open up April 22nd, although I don't really believe it because if you look at the building, there's still some construction to be do, be done. Only aren't we also getting the nighttime safari that day? Yes, we are. Yeah. Absolutely. So the nighttime safari in Rivers of Light should be enough to bust the gates a little bit. Oh, I, yeah, nobody's nobody's breaking down the doors to get to Tiffins, you know, first thing. They're there for Rivers <laughs> well, of Light. You you might at some safari. point, but not anytime soon. No, I'll definitely go, but no. <laughs> So let's uh, before take... we do this. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Do you do you want to play a very special episode of oh, America's no. Favorite Game? Oh god. Sure. Uh, I just learned this, Dave. This is breaking news. Okay. A I'm... new tour is coming to Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge. Really? Called the Sense of Africa. To the Lodge. To the Lodge. Okay. Here's what. Here's what you get. All right. It is a three and a half hour experience. Wow, that's long. That begins with and includes breakfast at Boma. Ooh. Taking okay. place before the restaurant off opens. Some exclusive dishes will be on hand for your for you only, along with the restaurant's regular buffet breakfast. Okay. While you're eating, a cast member from Africa comes and will share stories and explain some of the details of the restaurant. Next up, you ride on a safari truck and head backstage for some close-up animal encounters, which may include giraffe, ostriches, and okapi. The tour groups are small. There's just 12 guests, and it only happens on Tuesdays and Saturdays, and reservations apparently are going to start opening up next week. Okay, so it's timely. Dave, Dave, guess how much that costs. Breakfast Mm -hmm. at Boma. Right. Which is about $35. Right. Um, a cast member comes and gives you a, a tour. That's not I mean, a, a, in a story. You get a backstage safari truck, you said? Yeah, you ride on a safari walk truck around backstage. backstage. Okay, so so let's combine. Here, here's how I'll do this. Let's combine a, a long backstage tour, which is probably about $100, mm-hmm. with the cost of a... Um, Boma 
meal, which is all, but now we're up to about 135, and then we'll add, well, I'll say 150 dollars. Dave, it's 249.99. No, 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 no. A minimum age of 10 years old. However, if you are an annual pass holder or a DBC member, you will likely be able to get a 15 percent discount. That is so expensive. Just a, 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 another fantastic sounding tour that Dave will not be going on anytime soon. You got to remember, it's three and a half hours. It's a long time. I mean, the Wild Africa Trek, which is what one ninety nine, or is it over two hundred? I don't even remember. Well, yeah, it, that's about three hours too. This is a little bit more expensive. It does and it, like that one. It includes food. Um, it's it's a little pricey. I you know, there's no doubt about it. It seems more than a little pricey to me, because uh, the Keys to the Kingdom tour, the backstage tour mm-hmm. at um, at the Magic Kingdom, which is also a matter of hours long. I mean, right. it's not you know, it's not a it's not a short tour by any means. I'm not sure how long it really is, but I want to say it's in that. In that three-hour range, and you also get lunch. Although, I mean, albeit not, you know, not at one of the fast food places, rather than at you know Boma. Right, this is better. That's food, only like an eighty-dollar tour, Mike. Um, so this is terribly overpriced. I mean, uh, you know, it's it, part of it will depend on what they mean by close-up animal encounters. Does that just mean, you know, you're, you know, sitting in the truck looking at the giraffe, or does it mean you're? You know, feeding the giraffe. I mean, that, that's a a little bit of a difference in it, terms of in terms of that. But go ahead. I agree. the The old backstage safari tour um, was, you know, a normal tour price. It wasn't, you know, outrageously right. expensive like this one is. And again, that was another one that was hours long. I mean, that right. was, you know, probably three hours. I don't remember the the, the exact number off the top of my head, but I, I, it it was something like that for sure. Um, man, that's a you know you're reading it and you're telling it to me and I'm getting excited. I'm like, wow, this is going to be great. And then you get two hundred fifty dollars. <laughs> and Mike, well, we went on. Did you ever go on the backstage safari? I did not. Okay, the backstage safari. You went within. I could grab the horn of a rhino. I was that close. Well, maybe you actually get to ride the old copy. Maybe that would. Well, I mean, if that's what you think they should do. <laughs> Well, Mike, that's that's more than double what it should be. I mean, it, it should be accessible, especially since it's at the at the Animal Kingdom Lodge and it's for lodge guests. I mean, or you know, essentially, for, it actually does not say it's specifically. I know, for lodge but, guests, but so. I mean, not a lot of people are going to trek over there just for something like this. It's going to be lodge guests that have the most that are probably on it the most. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems like it should be something more accessible. But again, let's wait. Let me let me not completely shoot it down until we see exactly it. This is what you gave me there. If that's the official information, there's not a lot to that. Um, so maybe there's more to say, maybe, the, you know, maybe there's more coming. I don't know. Let's hope because that's crazy priced. Anyway, <laughs> we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to speak with Dr. Ann Savage, the executive director at Proyecto Titi and the conservation director at Disney's animal kingdom. Stay tuned.
We're back on Radio Harambe. Dr. Ann Savage is the executive director at Proyecto Titi and also the conservation director at Disney's Animal Kingdom. That organization, Proyecto Titi, you've actually heard Mike and I talk about this quite a bit over the last few weeks. That is the conservation organization that deals with cotton top tamarins, one of our all-time favorite animals to watch at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And... Uh, Dr. Savage, thank you first very much for joining us. And uh, I would like just for you to sort of explain um, what a conservation director is at the Animal Kingdom, but also what Proyecto Titi does. Well, I think I have the best job at Walt Disney World because I get to work on conservation projects around the world. And of course, my favorite is the cotton top tamarind that's found only in the country of Colombia and that I've been working on for many, many years. And the the cotton top tamarins. Let's let's before we before we kind of begin, um, like what people can do to help and all this kind of stuff. And what tell us a little bit about the what they face. The um, you know Mike and I have talked a little bit about their sort of existential crisis, uh, but we'd like to sort of hear it from you and uh, tell us a little bit about sort of the dangers that that particular animal is facing right now and the conservation efforts going into what's what we can do to help. Sure, happy to share uh, about cotton tops. So one of the things that makes them very unique is that they're found only in the country of Colombia. Nowhere else on earth will you find cotton top tamarins in the wild. And their population was really impacted in the early years um, when between 20 to 30,000 cotton top tamarins were exported from Colombia. In the late 70s, they were put on the endangered species list and that really helped modify everyone's um, ability to import these animals legally. But during that time, there was a lot of challenges with habitat being destroyed and that has a lot to do with the fact that a lot of rural communities are found very close to the forest where tamarins live. And because these rural communities really don't have ways to have a stable source of income, they're constantly extracting resources from the forest. And so that really is a problem for the long-term survival of this. So trees are cut down to make fence posts. Um, they're clear, forests are cleared for agricultural purposes. And of course, you know, the farming practices in these rural communities aren't very good. So if the crops don't yield uh, a lot in the season, what the farmers will do is cut down even more trees so they try and plant more crops. So it's a, it's a big struggle. And um, the, the other challenge, of course, is this whole idea of, you know, everyone thinks monkeys make good pets, and uh, everyone thought that cotton tops would make good pets, and it's, it's a real challenge um, because cotton tops are found in the illegal pet trade. And uh, we've been working really, really hard to get people to understand that if you really love cotton tops, the best thing for them is to keep them in the forest and help protect them there. Now, you said you were working really hard for, does that sort of, um, you know, working with the local people in, in terms of doing that? Yes, the reason our program is so successful is that we work hand in hand with local communities in a number of different ways. One is that we've got very successful education programs. You know, we start when kids are in elementary school all the way through um, secondary school or what we would call high school. And, um, you know, it is, when I first started working in Columbia, I did a little survey in the communities and over 90% of the people had no idea that cotton tops were found in Colombia. They really thought they were found all over the world. In fact, that we had them running around here in our backyards. And they, they also 
really didn't understand that they were an endangered species. I'm happy to tell you today that it's exactly the opposite. We have more than 90% of the people that we have surveyed know that cotton-topped tamarins are critically endangered and that they are helping to ensure that this animal continues to have a future in the wild. Now, th th those education programs are done through Proyecto TT? Yes, yeah, so we've got, for our elementary school kids, we really focus on some simple things, and that is really trying to get them to understand the, what really makes a good pet. And in Colombia, kids really don't distinguish the difference between domestic animals and wild animals that you might find in the forest. They really think an animal is an animal is an animal, and therefore it can be a pet. So our, our program is all about teaching kids the difference between these exotic animals that belong in the wild versus domestic animals that make much better pets. And, um, I mean, besides this sort of community, I guess, outreach program, uh, what other things does Proyecto TT do in terms of trying to help uh, conserve and protect the cotton top? Well, you know, our education program has been really effective in changing the knowledge and attitudes of kids and wanting them to make a difference. But one of the things that we need to realize is the majority of the communities that live in these areas live below the poverty line. So while it's really easy for um, people to tell these local folks don't cut a tree, well, if you don't have a way to feed your family and you can sell that tree for money so that you can buy food for your family, you know, that's what's going to happen. So our goal is never to put people in a, in a difficult situation. And so we've spent a lot of time trying to develop some sustainable income generating alternatives for folks and, and also looking for ways to reduce their impact on the forest. So one of our initial programs was um, a, a program that allowed us to develop these small little cook stoves called bindes. And it turns out that these bindes burn fuel more efficiently. So when you're cooking over an open fire in Colombia, you'll burn about 15 logs a day to feed a family of five. Think about the number of trees that you're having to cut down. Right. Binde, you burn only five. So this is something that we've spread throughout most of the rural communities that don't have access to electricity. And it's a great easy way for them to get involved in something that helps to protect the forest. Our most successful program to date has been a program that's all about trying to reduce the amount of plastic that's found in the environment. You know, when I first started working in Colombia back in the 80s, you would never find a plastic bag just lying in the street or you know, in a waterway or in the forest because they were really, really rare. But just like in the United States, now around the world, plastic bags are littering our environment. So we've come up with a program where we can really um, turn that plastic into something that's really useful. So working with a group of local community artisans, uh, we have trained women to crochet using plastic bags to make these really beautiful tote bags that we call mochilas. And um, it's very exciting to see how this program has developed. It started out with five women. It's now grown to over 300 artisans that are producing mochilas that are then sold around the world, which is really exciting. And the proceeds from their uh, sales actually stay in the community. So, you know, the great thing about working in these women's programs is that they invest in their community. 
and in their families. So you can see people that were originally living in little mud huts are now living in brick homes. Um, they're able to, where possible, send their kids to school, buy them birthday presents, buy them Christmas presents, things that we sort of take for granted. Um, in addition, this program has been so successful, it was recognized by the United Nations Development Program and received the Equator Prize in 2012. And so that was just an amazing opportunity to have a couple of our artisans go to the Rio Plus 20 meeting where they were able to receive this award. So this was the first time that women from a little village of 250 people had ever been on a plane and imagine flying to Rio de Janeiro. It was quite an experience. <laughs> now, um, in terms of uh, the studying the tamarins. Um, you have done, you have studied the tamarins in the wild, correct? That's true. Okay, that, that, I mean, that must be a difficult proposition considering how big or how small, I should say, uh, the tamarin is. Well, I have to admit, the very first time I went to Colombia, I was in for a very rude awakening. You know, I had worked with cotton-top tamarin, tamarins in managed settings for, for a number of years, so it was very easy to just sort of walk in and I'd be close enough that I could tell individuals apart. And you know, that's a bit tricky because cotton top tamarind males and females look exactly the same. They don't have any distinguishing characteristics. You know how in some species males are larger, they might be more brightly colored? Well, that's not true for tamarinds. Males and females look identical. And so, um, in, you know, when I worked with them in zoos, you could actually you know, get close enough that you could see that, oh, well, this one might have slightly shorter hair or, you know, it might have a slightly different curve of its tail. Um, but when you're out in the wild and you're trying to find a monkey that's about the size of a squirrel, that's up about 30 to 40 feet in a tree, um, it's pretty difficult to, one, even locate them, let alone try and tell them apart. And I remember my first trip to Columbia, I walked and walked and walked and never saw a cotton top, even though they were supposed to be there. And the thing about cotton tops is that they're very good about staying hidden if they don't want to be seen. So I ended up coming back from this first trip thinking, you know, I'm going to have to do something to figure out, one, how to find groups, and then two, how to tell individuals apart. So I came up with the idea of uh, putting a little transmitter on cotton tops. And, you know, at that time, a lot of folks were beginning studies in radio telemetry where you would put, you know, these collars on animals and then be able to track them in the wild. Well, the challenge with cotton tops is that the, um, the radio transmitters that they were available would, uh, were really heavy, and so putting that around the neck of an animal would be kind of a tough thing to do. And I always sort of uh, liken it to imagine, you know, if you were a kid who carries your books in your backpack every day on your back, you're pretty used to doing that, right? But what if I now told you you had to put that around your neck and carry it to school every day? You know, you could do it, but it would be pretty uncomfortable. So um, I worked with some engineers to come up with a new design, and we developed a transmitter that could literally be carried on the back of a cotton top. And this worked out really well because when you look at how cotton tops move through the forest, um, they're used to carrying babies on their back. So we designed the transmitter so that it weighed about um, the same amount as one baby, so we felt pretty comfortable that the animals could move easily through the forest. And then we designed a little backpack-type harness. Um, and we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what to make the harness out of. We tried all this really high-tech material, and you know what ended up working best? 
a shoelace. So um, <laughs> we use a, a very high-tech shoelace to attach the transmitters to, to the animals. And we've been using that now for almost uh, 30 years. Uh, and we've had very great success. So that's how we're able to find our animals because we can take our uh, telemetry receiver into the forest and put the antenna up. And the closer we get to the animal, the louder the beep sounds in our ears. Um, the animals can't hear it, we can just hear it. So um, we can find our animals, but then we have to figure out how do we tell individuals apart. So one of the things that we do is that we actually dye the hair of cotton-top tamarins in the wild. And um, so anything that's white has a chance of turning a different color. And um, I want to let you know that we tested all of this on our animals in, in managed care first. And one of the things that's so great about cotton tops is that they're very accepting of diversity. It doesn't matter what you look like, it's really all in how you behave. So um, we, we now can look at our cotton top tamarins as we walk through the forest and identify individuals by these um, little color patterns that we've added to them. And uh, it's, it's a great opportunity for us to learn more about them. Now, you, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, you've been putting transmitters on cotton tops for, uh, I think you said almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, how many, how many actually do you have transmitters on, like, for example, now? I mean, how well, many are there? Yeah, we typically put a transmitter just on the adult male in each of our study groups. And so a group of tamarins can be anywhere from about two to eight individuals, and it all depends on where they are in the forest and of how many, you know, what the resources are like. Um, so right now we've got about, um, we're monitoring about between 15 to 17 groups. And our team goes out virtually every day to figure out what these animals are doing. And we spend a lot of time really looking at the social dynamics you know, and understanding what these animals, how they spend their day, what they like to eat, who likes to eat them, you know, and uh, really just looking at, you know, what are the factors that are influencing their survival. And it's been really interesting because we've been able to study a female, and her name is Tamara. And um, uh, we've actually been following her when she was just a little fetus in her mother's belly. So we were studying her mom and then Tamara was born and we've been studying her now for almost 16 years. And she is the oldest living cotton top tamarind in the wild on record. So it's uh, just amazing to watch how she's managed to survive that long. Because prior to that, no one ever believed that a cotton top tamarind could live to the ripe old age of 16, given their size and given you know how many predators are out there that like to eat them. But she's an amazing female. Now, I do think she's probably the exception to the rule, but she was the very first animal we habituated, and she is one that has really opened up the world of cotton top tamarinds to scientists today. And uh, we owe her a big debt of gratitude. Um, now, you. you uh Early on when we were first talking, you had mentioned um, about the exportation of cotton top tamarins, um, you know, back in the 70s and, and before that. And now it's really, I, I guess now it's really habitat destruction as the key issue facing the cotton top tamarind in the wild. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, exactly. And that is really, you know, each and every day we, we have to fight the fight of trying to protect forests, whether it's in Colombia or here in the U.S. or anywhere around the world for species. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Colombia, how much actually uh, area is protected? I mean, how how much space do we actually have for the cotton top tamarins that are that are protected now? Well, I'm happy to tell you that in the last uh, three years, we've been able to establish three new protected areas for cotton top tamarins that come to about um, 1,500 acres. 
Okay. So that's just the work that we've been able to do. And there are other groups now that are collaborating with us to um, continue to do that. But the thing that's most important is there are a lot of, you know, while you can have a protected area, unless you're working with the communities, it, these parks are basically just kind of on paper, right? There's, it's not like people are patrolling and they're making sure people aren't going in or out. Um, it just gives you the legal status that people can't go in and cut down trees. But enforcement is a big problem. So what we found is that what we really need to do are to engage the communities to, ensure, to show them how important it is that there are great benefits for them uh, by conserving these forests. So it's not, we don't ever want to say the monkeys are more important than people. We want to say you guys are really going to benefit by conserving these forests for cotton tops and for your families. You know, when he listen to you talk about that, I mean, Mike and I have had a couple of conversations with um, conservation, you know, directors and people working in the field, and it's amazing to me how similar some of these themes are. I mean, how you know, it seems that really the key is. I mean, there's the poaching aspect, there's, but the the real key is, it seems uh, globally almost that the real key is making, is showing that benefit to the local community of what the animal this particular species gives to you and what it could cost you if they're not there is that a fair uh, <laughs> i mean i'm just a I'm, I'm just a fan here i don't know but it just seems like there's a there's a thread here kind of globally to almost many many species absolutely and you know today conservation is all about people how do we get people to care about protecting these animals and the places that they need to survive and and where do you think disney plays a role in that well, one of the things that I'm so proud of is how the Walt Disney Company has really uh, been a leader in protecting habitat around the world. Through the efforts of the Disney Worldwide, the Disney Conservation Fund, um, we have given away uh, more than $20 million to conservation efforts, and we're celebrating our 20th anniversary, which is very exciting for all of us. Um, and, you know, in the next few weeks, there'll be some really exciting new announcements of how the fund is going to be working um, even more diligently to protect habitat and species around the world. So we're very excited about that. In addition, one of the things that I'm very excited about is the just the level of commitment that we have with all the cast members that work here at Disney's Animal Kingdom and throughout the Walt Disney Company in wanting to do their part to help save species. You know, we have a lot of expertise on our team right here, and we have a lot of folks that are involved in conservation uh, in a number of different ways, whether it's leading programs in other countries or whether it's, um, you know, leveraging their talents to help share stories that we need to inspire local people or whether it's telling about, you know, our guests who are coming to our parks about the importance of saving wildlife. And, you know, it's having these experiences with nature that I think is so critical um, we know that youth today don't get to spend as much time in nature as we did when we were growing up. And that turns out it's, it's really critical, right? If you don't have those kind of experiences in nature, um, you're probably less likely to care about it. So our goal is really to provide more experiences for all of our guests that come to visit not only here at Walt Disney World, but all of our properties around the world and give them those opportunities to experience nature so that we can instill those lifelong conservation values. 
you know, I'm going to give you the most softball of questions I think anybody's <laughs> ever given somebody. But Mike and I are both, I mean, obviously from the show, uh, you know, fans, devoted fans of the Animal Kingdom. And uh, you mentioned something there that I thought maybe you'd want to riff on a little bit more, which is the people who work there. I mean, we we come to the to that park and we learn so much. I mean, as as fans and people who like to come to see the animals and to, uh, you know, to learn about the conservation issues, you have such a wonderful group of people that work there and it seems that uh, that everybody in that in that business knows that that's a special group there at the animal kingdom their own kind of breed of disney people <laughs> <laughs> i think you know it is the best combination of that passion for being a disney cast member and that commitment to caring about wildlife and you know that's the sort of the sweet spot of the people that work here because you it's the blending of both worlds and a true commitment to wanting people to care about these animals for the rest of their lives. Mike, you have anything else before we uh, wrap up? Oh, you know, something uh, maybe a little bit more of a personal question for you. Um, how long have you actually been at Disney? Well, here's the exciting thing. I actually was on the opening team of Disney's Animal Kingdom. So I was at the park before it was open to the public. Oh, and, wow. and <laughs> you're lucky you're telling us this now, or we, we could have been holding you on this interview for hours. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I have been very, very fortunate to work closely with a lot of our Walt Disney Imagineers, um, you know, on some of our exciting projects that have happened. And so, um, you know, I'm going to be celebrating in just a few months, 19 years with the Walt Disney Company. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of trivia and see if you can find it on your next trip to the park. Uh, <laughs> when we... Uh, we're getting ready to develop uh, Expedition Everest, and I know you've probably written that a million times, yes. right? Yes, yes. Um, I want you to walk through that queue line because uh, as part of Disney's commitment uh, to conservation, we really wanted to go to that part of the world, so Nepal, China, the area where the Yeti was supposedly from, and work from a conservation perspective with some of the local scientists to really get an idea of some of the wildlife in the area. And we worked in close collaboration with Conservation International to do a biodiversity assessment. The idea being that we wanted to go into an area to see what sort of animals were there, and then also to share that information with scientists and, and train some of the local scientists on how to do this so that they had a better way to sort of document the amazing wildlife that was in these regions of the world. And we went to places that had really, you know, been not explored very well at all. And so when you walk through the queue line, you'll actually see my field notes uh, from the expedition. You'll see pictures of the team that were out there. And you'll actually see these little footprints of a little Szechuan jumping mouse um, that we had run across one of our footprint tubes. And I want you to look really closely at the footprint because I could not have even uh, imagined that this was true. But the little footprint actually has an imprint of a Mickey design in it. So it's, it's pretty special. <laughs> Uh, Mike, if, when you know when people always ask uh, fans what what is your dream job, it sounds like Doctor Savage has your dream job here at, <laughs> uh, at, at Disney. It's true, I have the best job at Walt Disney World. Now, one last one last question for you before we let you go. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, challenges 
for conservation throughout the world. Um, we hear a lot of bad news about it. But I'm curious, do, do you feel we're making progress? And I mean, on a global scale, not just the, for the cotton top tamarins. And also, before you go, can people do anything to assist Preecto Titi? Is there a place they could donate and that kind of stuff? Sure. So for me, I am always hopeful and I have a reason for hope. And that is, I think I see great strides with certain species being made. You know, when we um, first began working with cotton top tamarins, we were really concerned that the population had dropped um, considerably. But I'm happy to tell you that when we did our next census, our population was holding steady. Now, that's pretty amazing in this day and age that populations aren't continuing to decrease. I think we're also seeing similar trends with sea turtles. And when you think about butterflies, those are species that are fairly easy to recover if given the right habitat. So I really think it's galvanizing more people to get interested in thinking about what you can do for wildlife because we really can help a lot of species out there today. Now, if people want to get involved, I think that one of the really fun things to do is to take a look at DisneyAnimals.com and it features some of our conservation work and that are tied to some of our species here at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And then, of course, we always appreciate donations that are made to the Disney Conservation Fund because that helps to support wildlife conservation efforts around the world. And. I just want to thank you not only for coming on the show, but more importantly, for everything you've done. <laughs> not, not just for us Disney geeks who love to come to this park and what you've done to develop that into such an amazing and beautiful place to see such incredible species, but also for all the work you've done in conservation. We can't thank you enough. Well, thank you very much for your kind words. I know that it's those sorts of... Um you know, sentiments that keep me going each and every day because I really believe we can all be wildlife heroes. Dr. Savage, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. too. Bye-bye. You too, do it for another episode of Radio Harambe. Thank you for tuning in. And of course, our thanks once again to Dr. Savage, you know, for Mike and I uh, to be able to speak, to have the honor to speak to somebody who plays such a huge role in not only the Animal Kingdom Park, but also in the conservation effort that Disney does throughout the world. Uh, it, it really is quite a thrill to talk to her. And uh, I can't thank her enough for taking the time out to join us on the show. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes if you don't already. Uh, You can review us there. Leave us a rating. That does help get the word out on the show. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at Radio Harambe. You can also follow Mike on Twitter. He is at Jombo Everyone, although if you're listening to this, you probably already follow him on Twitter. Um, You can also find us on Facebook all the other social media sites, go to jomboeveryone.com. That is our website. And from there, you can find the links to everything. Um, Don't forget, if you haven't 
already done so, please take a look at our store. Uh, we have some great Not a Half Day Park merchandise there that is going to be going extinct in the very... Uh, <laughs> very near future. Uh, we're going to be taking that all down and um, starting fresh sometime later in the year. Uh, once again, thank you everybody and our thanks to Dr. Savage. So for Safari Mike, I'm Dave McBride, Quaharini, go well, and thank you for listening to Radio Harambe.